0: Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we explore M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. And Rodney. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Back again.
1: Yay. This is
0: what, like fourth time? I believe this is number four. Yeah. Number four with Rodney. We did John Carter. Uh, The Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which you love. Best movie ever. Jennifer's Body. Jennifer's Body. That's right.
1: Your other favorite movie.
0: Yes. uh, If for some reason you haven't listened to those other podcasts, Rodney is also the host of his own podcast, Rodney.
2: Oh yeah, we'll do the the short spiel. Yeah,
0: let's do the shortest possible spiel.
2: I'm the co-host of another podcast called Pod Forsaken, with a P. Every week we do an episode on a horror movie you probably haven't seen. We do a little part where we talk about it without spoilers, and then we spoil the shit out of it. And if you want to hear me just argue with people about what makes a good horror movie, you should come check it out.
0: What was the last one you did? We just actually,
2: we recorded earlier today, we did a double feature of The Curse of La Llorona with La Llorona. The, the Shudder movie, the Guatemalan movie. Oh,
0: interesting. Uh, it
2: turns out one of them is a good movie and one of them is a bad movie.
0: <laughs> well, we'll have to tune into the podcast to find
2: out. But uh, we're not here to talk about my show. We're here to talk about your show.
0: And today on Tentpole Trauma, we are covering the 2006 M. Night Shyamalan film, Lady in the Water. Woo! This uh, has, deserves uh, to be on Tentpole Trauma for a number of reasons. Famously... Before this movie, M. Night Shyamalan basically was untouchable. He had had four movies that were pretty big hits. You know, the the returns were diminishing a little bit, but, you know, Sixth Sense, uh, Unbreakable, Signs, and then The Village. The Village was when things, the first cracks started to be seen in the facade. Although I actually kind of like The Village. Jen, I know you like it too. I do. Yeah, so, but I, I I, remember at the time when this came out feeling like, I'm starting to see some cracks in the dam, you know? But all of his movies before this movie had been set up at uh, Touchstone, which was sort of the adult imprint of Disney. And this movie he conceived because he it came out of fairy tales that he was making up and telling to his daughters who were very young at the time. And, you know... He's telling his daughters this story, and he thought, hey, this would be a really great movie. So he wrote the screenplay, and he sent it to the producers at touchstone pictures, the people he normally relied on to give him millions of dollars to make these movies. and he got really pissed off because the first executive he sent it to, she took her kids to a birthday party instead of like he expected her to read it the script like that day like he' like FedEx it over and like I'm sure she had to sign for it and everything and she took her kid to a birthday party so he was so pissed. When she finally got around to reading it, she didn't like it. And that pissed him off even more. So basically, he took his ball and went home. He decided to make it at another studio, which was Warner Brothers. And this movie cost $70 million, which is ridiculous if you see the movie because it does not look like a $70 million movie. The reason why it costs $70 million, do you know why, Rob? Isn't it because they
2: built the entire apartment complex?
0: That is correct.
2: <laughs> wow. The,
0: the dingy apartment complex in which this movie takes place was all built from scratch in warehouse land in Pennsylvania. The reason why they did that is because M. Night Shyamalan did not want to have to drive more than 45 minutes from his home. Uh, In Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh or whatever, like most of his movies are take place in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Sorry,
2: the other Pittsburgh.
0: Yes. So he demanded that this set be built and not be further than 45 minutes from his home. And he timed it. When it, to the drive and it was 43 minutes exact so basically this movie was a big temper tantrum um and the reason why it costs so much money is because he insisted on building the entire set out of scratch and uh yeah that's why it cost 70 million dollars now it made like a dismal amount of money on the opening weekend, I think about $16 million. It ended up only grossing $72 million total worldwide, which makes it a pretty big failure because a lot of times people see those numbers and they're like, well, if it costs $70 million and it made 72, then they made $2 million. And it's like, no, that's not how it works at all. A lot of money goes into print and advertising. Plus, uh, worldwide grosses are not... The studios only get about half on the average of the gross from worldwide grosses. They get most of the money in the States, but only about half. So the check did not clear at all on this movie. And it wasn't critically well-received either, Uh, but we'll get into that. So um, I was a big M. Night Shyamalan fan, really, at the time. Like I said, I... I saw and liked all the movies. I loved The Sixth Sense. I'm one of those people that was just blown away by The Sixth Sense. I really liked Unbreakable. I liked Signs. And I liked The Village pretty much okay, too. Jen, were you an M. Night Shyamalan fan around the time of this movie's release in 2006?
1: Yes. Uh, I'd seen all of those movies in the theater. And... um Continued to even after this one continued to see them in the theater. I always see whatever he's putting out. I even saw Devil, which he just produced because he was attached to it. I always give him a chance.
0: Was the brand of M Night Shyamalan something you were aware of and enthusiastic about? Yes, but
1: I mean, as time has gone on, you know, you get a little wary of it, you know, because you you may have been burned along the way, but always hopeful yeah. because when he when he's like when he gets it right, he really gets it right.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're talking to, like, a pretty big M. Night Shyamalan fan.
0: Right on. But
2: when I say that, I think it's important to to to, to talk about the first three movies. And, well, actually, this is how big of a fan I am. I've seen his actual first movie, which is Wide Awake. Right.
0: Well, there's another one, too. Uh, Praying
2: with Anger, which yeah. that's actually his first movie, but you can only see that if M. Night Shyamalan shows it to you at his, like, house. Uh-huh. You've not been invited? Strangely, not yet, but i it's its a mission. <laughs> After this episode, he might not want to have me. Um, <laughs> but I really love The Sixth Sense. Unbreakable is probably my favorite of his. Uh-huh. Signs. I basically agree with you. Those first couple were amazing. And The Village is very good. Yeah. I think The Village, there were things about The Village where I was like, this doesn't feel like a whole movie, but I liked it. So when Lady in the Water was was about to come out, I was pumped. I was like, it's the new Shyamalan film. I am in opening night. Uh, and and then I saw it.
0: I w- was pretty much the same, although, you know, I can't even say for sure that I was pumped for it when it came out. I did see it opening weekend uh, with a bunch of friends. Uh, but I remember at the time, I don't know if it was just the concept or the way the marketing was selling it. It wasn't really working for me just on that sort of marketing level. So I remember being pretty lukewarm about it. But let's uh, talk about the movie. The movie starts with this animated intro that basically sets up what are going to be our mythological elements of the story. There are these beings from this place called the Blue World, which I'm assuming is water, water you know, there's these sort of cave like drawing images of these beings coming from the water. And we learn that, you know, there are the humans and these beings and, you know, for a while they lived in harmony, but then the humans, as we always do in these types of stories, went off and, you know, started being greedy and killing things and making war and that kind of stuff. It's a pretty boilerplate. Sort of um, fantasy setup, uh, narrated by uh, David Ogden Stiers. Um, if you know who that actor is, he was in the later seasons of Mash. But he's got a good sort of stentorian voice.
2: So I want to say two things. First of all, I love the intro. I I love the animation style. I love the music. I, I didn't. I don't know who that narrator is, but I think he does a great job. And I actually think the opening prologue is maybe the best part about the movie. Uh-huh. Like I just am so into it. The other thing is, uh, I don't know if you guys have read the book, The Man Who Heard Voices, or if you know about it. I do know about it, yes. So that is, if for anyone listening who wants to know a lot about Lady in the Water, there's this book called The Man Who, who Heard Voices, which is about M. Night Shyamalan making Lady in the Water. And it's basically like a journalist was given full-time access. And in the book... They talk about how after they shot the movie and they screened it for test audiences, nobody had any fucking clue what was going on. Uh Uh-huh. And that's when M. Night Shyamalan was like, what if I add an animated intro to explain some shit? Right. So that prologue is like
0: like a bandage after the fact. Which is kind of weird to me because as helpful as it may or may not be, I feel like he explains things to death in this movie. So... I don't know if if this is the solution <laughs> because, I mean, it's not a bad, it's definitely not bad, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily fix anything. Jen, how do you feel about the, the animated prologue?
1: First of all, I don't really remember like the trailers or marketing for this. I think I just went to see it because it was M. Night Shyamalan. I also um, fell asleep in the theater when I went to see this. So Uh today was the first time I think I've seen it all the way through.
2: Wow. Yeah.
1: So I didn't even remember the animated sequence until seeing it today. And I was just kind of like, hmm, neither. I can't even say it's neither good nor bad. Really. It's just not my thing. So I was like okay this is what we're getting into here because i honestly didn't remember much about the film the, i remember the cast and you know the apartment set up and you know that bryce dallas howard is the lady in the water <laughs> that's about it when
0: you saw it were you feeling okay good i'm getting a sense of what i'm going to get into here or did you get a feeling of creeping dread
1: uh i think i, I actually uh, there's a little bit of both in there like I, I think it actually does a good job of explaining what's going to come um but then yes i did have creeping dread because this is not really my thing so i was like i'm getting i'm signing up for two hours of this
0: right and it should be said that fantasy is not jen's genre no and this definitely is m night Shyamalan's take on fantasy yeah it's while it has a
2: couple creepy things in it, this is not his standard like horror movie. No. I mean, Unbreakable isn't a horror movie either, but like, like look, M. Night Shyamalan does a very particular thing. Yeah. And this, this movie veers off a little too far from like where his bread and butter is.
1: Yeah. Like, cause I love Unbreakable, but I think it's because I also like superheroes and comics. So that's okay. You know, that that's not directly a horror film. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I mean, it's not like I don't like all fantasy. I'm just pretty particular about fantasy films. You
0: don't like most of it. But, um, anyway, I mean, I, I think in these early films, he was really trying to tackle a bunch of different genres, Genres, you know, like, yeah. I'm surprised he never did like his spy movie or whatever, because it felt like he was going from genre to genre. I mean, he did ghost movie with uh, six Sense. He did. Superhero movie with Unbreakable. Signs was his uh, alien invasion movie. The Village was kind of the Wicker Manny type of, you know, rural thriller. And then, you know, this was his fantasy thing. So that's how I kind of took it, you know, in his early career that it felt like he was just kind of genre hopping. And that was sort of the thing, you know, I I want to take my Shyamalan sensibility to a different genre. But, you know, I could be wrong. It could have just that could just have been a byproduct of the stories that he was doing. Do you do you like the intro? I think it's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to divorce the intro from the rest of the movie. I think for what it is, if I'm if I was going in cold and I don't remember how I felt when I first saw the movie, but if I was going in cold, I would think, okay, this is fine. It's giving me what I need. And I do agree with you. The graphics of it, I think, are pretty decent. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it's got that cave painting kind of vibe. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's perfectly decent as far as fantasy movie prologues are concerned. I mean, it's no Lord of the Rings But, you know, this movie is. No, no,
2: No. I just I remember being in the theater and I was stoked watching the, the intro. I was like, here we go. Like you're setting up a fairy tale like we got a whole story. I get it. There's like humans. There's the blue world. They haven't seen each other in a long time. But like a great, you know, reckoning is coming and they're coming back. I was like, I get it. Proceed. And I was in
0: getting into the actual story. Our in character wise is Paul Giamatti as uh, the character Cleveland Heap, which is an amazing name. Uh, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, his sort of, he is a you know superintendent in this massive sprawling complex that seems to be sort of out in the middle of the woods somewhere, but it's a big giant apartment complex surrounded by woods and then it's got a big pool. Those are the sort of the main things you need to know. And he is the schlubby superintendent, but uh, he's also um, has a stutter. You know, we sort of get right away that he's our our main character. And, you know, Paul Giamatti is doing a very Paul Giamatti performance, but leaning on the more sympathetic end of his his, skill set. And, you know, I, I like Paul Giamatti. I think he makes a perfectly decent protagonist for the story. So I definitely don't, have a problem um, with him, Jen? How do you feel about Paul Giamatti as Cleveland Heap?
1: I, I'm a Paul Giamatti fan, so I I like him already. Um, but I do like this character. I like Cleveland Heap. Um, you have empathy for him right away. You can sure. tell, yeah. tell he's he's going through some stuff, and. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think his I think his performance as Cleveland Heap is great throughout the film. I, I, I you know, we'll get into more of this, but I think all of the performances are, are good. It's nothing to do with the acting. Mm.
2: Oh, Jen, oh, we oh. will get
0: into this.
1: <laughs> Uh-oh. Hard
2: disagree. I think
0: this movie might suffer from the highest ratio of bad performances. Across the board, I'm uh, not going to argue with you there. Uh, but Paul Giamatti, I mean, you know, yeah, he makes, he's a decent center of the story. And he, he, I think it's actually a pretty cool role for him because he really gets to sell this sort of haunted quality. It's his haunted role. You know, I think every decent actor gets to play haunted at least once in their career. And this is it for him. And he does a really good job. To
2: be clear, I agree that he is the best actor in the movie. Um, he has many great scenes and he really balances, like there's a lot of comedy in the movie mixed with a lot of drama. And Mm -hmm. I think he does it very well. Yes. For me, I really, I want to be clear to to you guys and to listeners. I kind of like this movie. I think I like it more than both of you.
0: You definitely like it more than (laughs) (laughs) me. Okay. And me. Not to show my hand.
2: (laughs) But that doesn't mean I don't acknowledge that It's really bad. Uh And, Cleveland heaps stutter is so annoying to me. Like it's so annoying. It it, it feels so fake and like forced. And like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anyone with a severe stutter. Maybe that's exactly what it's
0: like. No, actually, you know what? If, if you don't mind me interrupting you, I lived for many years. uh, My family lived in a duplex two family home. And the guy who lived upstairs had a stutter just like this. Really? Yeah, actually, totally, one hundred percent. I'm not making this up, and uh, it was really unnerving because he would he would have it really bad on the phone. So he would call down on the phone, and he he wouldn't be able to start speaking. He'd just go, (laughs) and then say, and you, so it would freak you out. Like you'd pick up the phone, you'd think it was like a prank caller, like Black Christmas every time. I felt so bad for the guy. He was a perfectly nice guy, but uh, yeah, and it did sound a lot like the stutter. So I can kind of vouch for the stutter
1: i can vouch for the stutter as well i've i've been around stutters too so it's it's yeah and and it's it's just it just yeah my heart breaks because it's like there's not you just have to let you just my your your reaction is just like you just want to help them get the words out but like you can't do that because that's that's not um that's offensive in a way i think so you just have to kind of just like sit with it and yeah it's i i think i think he actually did a really good job with the stutter yeah. Okay.
2: Then the then then the stutter is authentic, and I apologize.
1: <laughs> well, and
0: I'm not going to make fun of anybody stuttering or stammering because I edit my own podcast, and I hear how often <laughs> I sort of stammer and mumble mouth words really badly, and uh, I have total sympathy for people who can't talk well.
2: No, speaking is hard, but it's hard. Um, but in in general, I do want to be I do want to be clear that I like I like uh, Paul Giamatti in this movie. Yeah, I think he's one of the one of the good things.
1: Yes.
0: So we're sort of introduced to this whole cast of characters. We get this sort of a 10-minute sequence where we're kind of going around meeting a bunch of, a bunch, but not all, of the quirky weirdos who live in this building. Uh, one of them is played by Bob Balaban. He's a movie critic. And it's this is one of just the most painful elements of this movie, in my opinion. It's so obvious, like, M. Night Shyamalan trying to stick it to all the people that didn't like the village or whatever. You know, he's just this, like, he's this insufferable movie critic who's got an opinion on everything. And it's just such an obvious dig at, a, at movie critics. This movie is so pretentious in yes. so many ways. It, it, is that, it is
2: that very special combination of pretentious and bad. The, the fact that he creates a film critic and makes him completely unlikable and has like multiple scenes where they basically talk about how being a film critic is like a, he's like an asshole and who, what's his place to like say what the artistic intention is of like an artist. Yeah. And I'm like, bro, you need to calm the fuck down. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> can you just tell me the story about the fucking lady in the water? Why are we talking we about film Can just stick credit?
0: to Narfs, please? <laughs> yeah.
2: No, the the Bob Balladman stuff is, is really painful. You could cut it all out and it wouldn't change anything.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, and once you sort of, know that that's what you're dealing with i feel like the movie just all sort of takes shape in a really horrible way
1: you know it's definitely his uh revenge on film criticism i mean it just felt it felt very purposeful that that's that's about it i mean I, i like that actor also and i mean whatever oh yeah
0: bob balaban is a great actor i i feel like to rodney's point he's terrible in this movie he's putting in a bad performance i don't blame him but I think, you know, I think what he's been given to work with is terrible and he's
1: well. That's, he's not
0: able to rise above it.
1: And that's way. kind of what I was saying earlier when you all when you all laughed at me when I said <laughs> all the performances are fine because it's like, look, these actors that are just doing what they've been given. Like, it's not like I don't think anyone is um, making it worse than the material that they have, if you know no. what I mean. Like that's No,
2: Jen. Like, a fine performance is like the Russian bodyguard buying a bag of Coke in an action movie. He's like, the deal is done. You're like, that was fine. This is bad. These people are all, like, they're all saying lines that were written for them. And I know from previous interviews that, like, M. Night Shyamalan is, like, really particular about people saying the words exactly as they're written. Yeah. And because of that, nobody speaks like a human being. Everybody is saying lines. And they're like waiting for their turn to respond. Yeah. And so there's these, even the way we're talking right now, we talk over each other. But in M. Night Shyamalan movies, everybody waits for their turn. And there's a pause between every line. Totally, yeah. And it's like, look, Knight, again, I love you, dude, but do you talk to people? Or is this how conversations (laughs) are for you? Like, he goes to the bank, he's like, I would like to withdraw some money. Pause. (laughs) Okay. Please hand me your
0: check. But I mean, I think to Jen's point, like, yeah, they're being forced to do it this way. So it's it's a little hard to to put the entire onus of the blame on that. You know, God, how how would you do it? You know? <laughs> like, No,
2: I, I agree. I'm not saying these are bad actors. I'm yeah. saying their performance is bad. But whose fault is that? It's right. M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. Okay. Because yes. there's not like there's not like one or two people where you're like oh that's a bad performance it's across the board yeah except for Paul Giamatti who's like I'm an expert actor and I'm gonna do I'm just gonna rise above this if you want to say the the sister who we'll talk about later the Indian sister yeah I think she, I think she's enjoyable I feel like she's like a real person
0: well yeah and that actress is uh it's a, so Sarita Chaudhry she's like a famous. Indian-American actress who shows up in a lot of stuff. She's way better than M. Night, who plays her brother. But we'll get to yeah. that.
2: Yeah, I, I figured we'd wait oh, on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: so one thing that's being set up while we're meeting all these kooky characters, who we'll go into more detail later as they become important to the story. Uh, one thing that's going on in the background is there's this pool, and the people are hearing there's somebody swimming in the pool when they shouldn't be. Um, You know, he's calling in cleaning guys who are finding, like, long hairs in the drains. And so, you know, there's this minor mystery of who's swimming in the pool, which is about to get revealed in our inciting incident, which is Cleveland hears something going on in the pool. He runs out and there is a naked woman in it played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Well, he goes out and he slips Incorrect, Sebastian. It's not a woman. It's a lady. It's a lady in the water. I think we have to be very clear. (laughs) It's a lady in the water. But what happens is he hears somebody in something in the pool. He goes out to the pool and then he there's you know, it's a little wet around there. So he slips and falls at the edge of the pool, which looks really painful and you feel bad for him. But then for some reason, he just rolls over (laughs) into the pool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is one of the first. Of things that happens in this movie that you're like why did that happen that way yeah why didn't he just fall into the pool and hit his head why did he need to fall on the side of the pool and then roll himself over into the pool
2: there are so many <laughs> moments in this film where it feels like m night Shyamalan had to get home for dinner and he didn't want to like shoot as all the coverage necessary uh-huh and so it just feels like frequently important information is missing visually because i'm with you he slips and i think we see him hit his head yep. but like why not just shoot it so that he hits his head and slides into
0: the pool exactly as, a, as opposed to oh i hit my head i guess i'll roll, roll this way he Sploosh. rolls over into he makes a conscious decision to roll his body into the pool like, who the fuck does that? If you slip by a pool, you're like, oh, thank God I didn't fall into the pool. You don't, like, then go, maybe I should roll over into it.
2: But, Ugh. Sebastian, you don't understand. That's what happened in the version he told his daughters at bedtime. Right. The answer to every single question is that's what happened in the story.
0: Can I say this up front? Whenever I hear an artist or writer, they say that their next project was a story that they told their children... I fucking know it's going to suck. Those are always the worst movies, books, comics, whatever. The whole, like, I'm doing this for my kids thing, always terrible.
2: Do you have another example of one?
0: Uh, I can't think of one. Well, I mean, like, the Robert Rodriguez did those spy kid movies. Uh, I've never watched those. Yeah, I mean, but this is the most egregious of them. But I feel yes. like, 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 Hook, Steven Spielberg's Hook, I believe, was done... For his kids. Oh. And that movie's fucking hot garbage. It's always <laughs> a bad idea. Always, I, always I a like bad Hook. Idea. We should do it on this show then. <laughs>
2: Didn't Hook make a lot of money?
0: Uh I could probably come up with an argument.
2: You can't don't speak poorly about that guy. Robin Williams? That's it. In my mind, I was like, Christopher Robin? That doesn't sound right. Well, no, no.
0: I love Robin Williams. (laughs) It's not his fault. All right. So Paul Giamatti falls in the water. He rolls in the water, rather. We don't see it. But then he is rescued by Bryce Dallas Howard. This was only this is one of her her first movies. She was in The Village. This was, I don't know, maybe her second major role. Obviously, uh, M. Night saw something in her. (laughs) So she's she's this otherworldly creature She's pulled him out of the pool and then dragged him back to his little shack that he lives in. He's got, like, his superintendent shack that's not actually, like, in the apartment complex. It's separate from it. But so she's pulled him out of the pool and then, I guess, got one of his shirts to wear. And she's sitting there on the couch, half naked. And she's like this the whole fucking movie, which is just sets up a weird dynamic between them because... You know, he's way older than her, and she's half naked, and she's got these cuts on her leg.
1: Honestly, when I saw it, I was kind of thinking about Splash. Yeah, and how And how it wasn't Splash is what I I was thinking. (laughs) Um, Did you
0: find it kind of creepy that now there's this half naked girl hanging out with Paul Giamatti in his shack for no reason?
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, he even says that. He even says like this is you know this isn't appropriate, like, you know, yes. having you in here. And he was he says something along the lines of like I'm old fashioned that way, like this is yeah. you know, this isn't good or whatever. And he doesn't really want her to stay. So I mean it's addressed, but yeah, I mean it's it's odd.
0: I feel like it has a lot to do with the way he sort of M knight shoots her. She's always kind of got
1: it. her legs up. Yeah.
0: Yeah, her legs are always up, and it's kind of—I just get a slightly creepy vibe from it, not from Paul Giamatti, but just from a directorial position.
2: So, just so you know, uh, my wife. So I I watched this again, you know, to to be prepared for the show. This is actually hope so. (laughs) I think this is like maybe the fourth time I've seen this movie. Oh, but my wife had never seen it, and she wanted to watch it. Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And she said the exact same thing. She was like. He he's shooting her in this really sexualized, creepy way, and yes. it's not cool. But just from like a plot standpoint, if she's like, I mean, you come to learn she's a narf, which is basically like a water nymph, oh. and she is naked. Why does she feel any need to put on clothes? Right. Right. Yeah. So she like took him out of the pool and was like, I guess I'll buy that she knows he lives in the shack. And she took him in there and she was like, Man, he's gonna be he's gonna feel awkward when he wakes up. So I'll put on his shirt, but no pants. No pants. Right. And then <laughs> After they talk, he, like, gets on the couch with her and, like, puts her legs, like, up on his and puts his hand on her thigh. And then they go to sleep like that. Yeah. I'm like, bro, you have a bed. Like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Like, why is this scene in the movie? It made me it made me very uncomfortable.
1: I didn't know if he did that or she did that because he it seems like he wakes up and he's kind of, like, uncomfortable that that position is happening. Yeah. I think she might have, like, moved over on or something. I, I don't I don't think it was – trust me, it looks creepy. Yes, I agree with that. But I don't think that was him. I think it was her.
2: Fair enough. He, she might have crawled into his lap after he passes yeah. out. But the fact that the movie doesn't show it happening, right. it's weird.
1: Yeah.
0: I think we're supposed to sort of feel like, oh, she's like a cat or like an animal that crawled in the, onto the couch with him and was snuggling with him. And, I mean, the way he plays it, he's like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, so – he, he plays it off fine and doesn't come off as creepy. But again, yeah, that's fair. I feel like it's a directorial thing where I'm feeling like he, M. Knight's being a little creepy about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so when he's in her presence, when Cleveland Heap is in her presence, he doesn't stutter anymore. So we're immediately clued in that she's got some sort of magical abilities. She tells him that she's a narf. And that she's from the blue world, you know, which is, we we've, we've, we know about the blue world because of the introduction, but, you know, she's a Narf. All a Narf is, is like a water sprite or whatever, but the it's been given this name, Narf, which I hate. <laughs> it makes me think of Snarf, the character from Thundercats. Thundercats, um, yeah. Who'd go, Snarf, um, Snarf. <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to do that but anyway uh yeah so i hate the name narf i hate all the names of the creatures in this i mean th- this is all the sort of things that is just an arbitrary taste issue you know i fucking love hobbits and that's a fucking dumb name but like You know I can't deal with Narf and Scrunt, so you know we we all pick our poison when it comes to fantasy naming naming tropes. But so we learn that she's a Narf. We also learn that there are these creatures called the Scrunts. Again, a terrible name. And you know I don't even I won't even repeat the c word that that evokes. (laughs) But there are these sort of grass dog wolf creatures that live in the grass, and they have grass for fur it's a it's a not terrible creature design i think the creature design in this i'll give it points for imagination i don't necessarily love it
1: yeah
2: i mean look i feel like when this movie came out there was a lot of criticizing it for coming up with the name snarf or, or Narf, sorry, Narf and scrunt and
0: snarf. And
2: while the words themselves are stupid, I do agree. Like scrunt is a, it just doesn't feel like the villain of your movie. Right. No. But like, I'm not going to hold that against it. It's a sure, fictional yeah. fantasy world. And if they're called scrunts, they're called scrunts. So be it. Right. I think the scrunt in theory and in many parts of the movie is really cool. I love the idea of a grass covered wolf. That can actually lay so flat that it becomes a part of the grass. Yeah, I like the red eyes. Like it definitely has a, a certain type of menace, and it injects into the movie an actual like like an ominous antagonist that feels needed. Because up to this point, you're like, what is this movie about? Yeah, and then when you realize, oh, there's like this demon wolf out there, that's cool. Unfortunately, there are like 50 percent of the time when you see it, it looks cool, and 50 percent of the time, you're like. That, that looks very CG and stupid.
1: I, I like the idea of the scrunts. I also hate the name. I That's just me. I just don't like that name at all. But yeah, I mean, I, I think as Rodney just said, it like brings some danger. Some of the stakes are, are up here because we've got this thing looming out in the grass yeah, there's certain shots where it, it looks cool and then, you know, later in the film you see more of it and it's not so cool. But I, I think conceptually the the idea is cool to have this wolf-like creature that's grass.
0: I mean, I think there's definitely some shots where it looks pretty badass. There's one shot where it goes um, by the camera and you see that its tail. Its tail is kind of these like branches. Branches. Mm-hmm. That I think like moments like that, I, I enjoy the design of it, you know, and, and I can appreciate the thought and creativity that went into it. Um, I love, I like creature design, so I'm always happy to see that. But um, I do feel like, yeah, like Jen said, a lot of the times it doesn't look that cool and it definitely looks very computer c- CG-ish. One thing I noticed about this movie this time, and, and it's funny because we... We didn't get very far and we intend to watch more of it, but we started watching Servant and uh, the the Night Shyamalan show that's on Apple Plus right now. And he directed the first episode. And in that episode, he does these really sort of intense camera shots where he's like. He set up a a, a two shot in and, in you know, it would just be in a normal show or whatever. It would just be two people across the table, but he set it up in this way. So one character is really in the forefront and then the other character is way in the background. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff like that camera wise in this movie where he's taking these intentionally strange or, you know, not strange, but, you know, he's he's making choices in where, you know, where he's putting the camera. That either work really well or they don't work at all. I mean, I, I, it's not a plus or minus. It's it's kind of just depends on how every scene is going. Like the the movie starts with a real close up on Paul Giamatti's face as he's you know trying to kill some kind of
1: Bug pest. Or yeah. yeah,
0: that we don't even know what it is, and people are screaming in the background because they're afraid of it. And you know we're right on his face. You know there's a few scenes where we really get right on people's faces and they're almost looking right into the camera. You know, it's a, it's a thing he does, and it either works or it doesn't. Unfortunately, in this movie, I feel like it kind of hurts the movie a little bit because he's trying to do a fantasy movie, and it kind of brings you out of the the fantasy idea, I think. I think if this movie was shot with a more sort of classical approach, I think it might actually help the story a little.
2: We didn't talk about the part. Maybe maybe this is a little later, but, like, he comes back in, and she's taking a shower, and she's, like, naked in front of him. Yeah. yeah. And... He basically says to her, "Please put some clothes on," but he doesn't stop looking at her. Right? right. He's like still staring at her. And I was like, "Yo, creeper! Like, fucking avert your eyes." <laughs> Wouldn't the? It felt like the actor Paul Giamatti would say, "Shouldn't I look away?" And M Night Shyamalan was like, "Are you the fucking director? I'm the director. I had this place built for sixty million dollars. Fucking look at her. Look at her naked form." <laughs>
0: yeah. And he said, "All right, boss." It's just such a weird choice because there are so many things that happen, I mean obviously in reality, okay? If this, you know, pretty naked girl just showed up, there these things would come up. These awkward moments would arise. I mean, and you know, when you're trying to address something in reality, that's all fine and good. But then there are so many other things in this movie that do not take reality into account. One of the major things basically, is everybody getting on board with this fucking insanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're, we're going to be realistic about, we're going to be realistic about how you deal with a naked woman, but then we're not going to be realistic about, like, I mean, if I lived in this fucking apartment complex, I'd be like, fuck off with this shit, dude. I, <laughs> like,
2: yeah, dude, I pay my rent on time. Leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like, literally, that's why M. Night Shyamalan doesn't show any of those scenes. It's just like, Paul Giamatti would be like, I talked to so-and-so, he's on board, and then they're on board. And you're like, where's the scene where you like convince him about the narfs and the scrunts and the blue world, right? Yeah. Like, wouldn't someone just be like, Bro, you've just kidnapped a teenage girl,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, and this this theme keeps coming up because then later, um, the uh the Indian uh, brother and sister The sister is like, Cleveland, he's got he's a player and everything like it's a great thing that he's hooked up with this (laughs) jailbait. Like, just ignore it, you know, like you're going to ignore everything else. Why are you paying any sort of attention to this element of it? You're just by drawing attention to it, it makes it even creepier. So then we move on to, um, so, you know, the Narf has told Cleveland, you know, these things about her and her world and what's going on. And so Cleveland decides to go to, Uh, Young Sung, who's played by an actress named Cindy Chung. She, I believe they're supposed to be Korean because I mean, of course this crazy shit happens to you. You're going to go right to the Korean people who live in the apartment (laughs) and be like, Hey, have you ever fucking heard of a Narf? (laughs) Well, I think first, first the
2: Narf, her name, or her name is story. We didn't even talk about that. Right.
0: Of course. Like the most eye rolling. Oh my God. okay (laughs) dude you know it's funny because it's like I totally agree like
2: why would you name her story that's so dumb because you're telling a story this is (laughs) about the power of
1: stories
2: (laughs) the title should have been a Narf named story (laughs) I remember being in the theater and her being like my name is Story. And I was like, no, it's not. What's your real come on? I can't be here. And then they kept calling her Story. And I was like, okay, I guess her name's Story. But I think she tells him, like, like I forget the order of things, but I think she says, yo, I'm here to like make eye contact with someone. That's my purpose.
0: That's totally how she says it, too. Like,
2: yo. Yo, I'm from the blue world. You gotta watch out for the
0: sprunts.
2: <laughs> Fucking represent the narfs. But I thought he goes to I thought he goes to that woman because she's a college student. She's like well read.
1: I think that's, yes, Rodney, I think that's what was implied because we get also a scene where I think we first are introduced to them, no, like their relationship, and she's a college student, and she is giving him a book or something, and she's like, he likes to learn. He just doesn't want anyone to know about it or something like that, does yeah. he say? Yeah, right,
0: yeah.
2: Sebastian, it's clear as day. <laughs> she's in college, <laughs> and he's like, I know that girl. She's in college. She must know about Narfs, and then he goes and asks her.
0: Right, because what that's you what get? you learn about in college is fucking <laughs> Narfism. Well, I just went to the most racist place and thought he was going to her because she's from another culture and therefore must know this crap, which she does. She does. You can't argue that. But it's really her mom who knows the lion's share of this expository nonsense that we're about to go. Uh. Like this this <laughs> grueling, like torturous and never ending exposition dump that goes throughout the whole movie begins yes. um, with her mother. We learned that the Narf is the chosen one. Oh no. We learned that Cleveland is the chosen one. And when the, or there, there needs to be a chosen one or something. And when they are awakened an Eagle comes. So basically we're just getting, this is what's going on and this is what needs to happen. And I'm like, this is the worst fucking fairy tale I've ever heard. <laughs> I,
2: I, I I could be wrong about the order. you you might be right. but like you are definitely right about the fact that this entire movie is just constantly explaining new rules. Yeah. All the way up to the final couple of minutes. And it is so inexcusable and so fucking dumb. Like you had an animated prologue. Put it all there, right? right. Like just get it all out and then we can follow instead of why are you telling me about the guardians and the guild and all this shit, which we'll get to later. Oh
1: Yeah.
0: And well, and at one point too, I even feel like the, doesn't the critic say something like, Oh, and characters just go around talking what they're saying and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like his way of being like, you know, I don't care. I may, my characters go around and talk and say what they're feeling. And like, You know, it's just it's such a defensive though. The critic character just kind of keeps coming in and being like M. Knight's defensive ego (laughs) against everything. Yeah. And like he knows he knows Uh. that this is like not the way you're supposed to tell a story. And yeah, like, but he, but yet he's doing it. He's doing it in this, the most painfully ham fisted, ridiculous way. Like it's almost impossible to pay attention to because your logic centers are just firing off like constantly. Like you're like, okay, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. And nobody's acting like it's the dumbest shit I've they've ever heard.
2: Yeah. I, I do have to say Paul G. Motti gets on board with her being a narf from a magic world very quickly. And he's just like, oh, be like
0: what fucking loony bin did you come from?
2: Yeah. Like, why is your first assumption? This girl's not she's on LSD and she right. jumped in the pool, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> he just like wakes up and he's like, you're not from around here, are you? And she's like, no, I'm a narf. And the scrunts are after me. He's like, oh, man, I got to help you. Right. Hey, hey, neighbor. do you, What do you know about narfs? And she's like, not much. but My mom knows everything, Ugh. but she only tells it in little pieces.
1: <laughs> it's just Painful is just drawn out like just are you kidding me we're going back to the mom again
2: you know often we talk about how like studio interference ruins a movie but sometimes the studio is there to make things keep things in line right oh my god for sure this is clearly like m night this is what this is out of every movie by m night Shyamalan that you have seen this is what actually is going on in M. Night Shyamalan's head. This is the one movie where he got to do whatever he wanted. Yeah. And, you, and now you see what, what that's like.
1: This is what happens when no one tells him no.
0: Exactly. I mean, you know, this is why the Star Wars prequels are terrible. You know, it's this person who's just been been has surrounded themselves by yes men in this case he literally left the studio that was bankrolling him because he wasn't liking how they were being it wasn't even they were saying no he just didn't like their attitude about it so yeah that's that's how deep down the rabbit hole we are on that but I I will say this I do enjoy the comedic element that um Cindy Chung as the young soon character brings to it I think she's A fun character, you know, if I can try to find some fun in this torturous experience, I do enjoy her kind of comedic moments. I like when she says, okay, Mr. Heap, you know, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's kind of a little offensive, I guess, in some ways, an Asian stereotype.
2: It feels offensive.
0: But he tries to temper it because she's kind of cool and she's got like dyed hair and she goes out clubbing. I mean, I don't know. It probably is offensive, but I'm at least sort of enjoying her screen presence.
1: I like her, too. I mean, I feel like it's a real it's a caricature of a person, you know, and, it, yes. and, and yes, is is offensive. But I, I do. I think she's I, I think she's an enjoyable Actor and I I do like the character. I think she's funny and that she's like pulling all this shit over on her mom, and her mom's like just yelling at her in Korean all the time. And
2: yeah, (laughs) like look, she she is entertaining. She certainly like breathes life into the movie. That's all I'm
0: saying. Yes, it's like at least when she's on screen, I'm somewhat more entertained. It's
2: just it creates this weird problem in your head because she is delivering the important narrative information about this like mystical epic tale. But every time she's doing it, it's presented in this goofy, funny way, right? Yeah. And so the shit that you need to know is being delivered in this, like, it's like making fun of itself. And it doesn't help that, like, it's hard to understand some of the things she's saying. Like when she talks about Tartudic, you know, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about.
0: Well, the Tartudic are the evil monkey law keepers. Who oh, are, I know. Who are evil, <laughs> but they also keep the law. And I do like them because I'm a big fan of all things Simeon. So they are kind of my favorite <laughs> thing in the movie, even though they make no sense.
2: I don't think they're evil. They're they're scary looking, but they're they're the lot. You're right. They're the lot. I think he people. says
0: they're evil. I don't know. Whatever. Who he cares? he.
1: Whatever. <laughs> they were set up to be scary as well. Yeah. But then you know they they handle shit. I I, I knew as soon as I saw them, I was like, this is going to be <laughs> Sebastian's favorite thing because yes. he loves, as he said, all things Simeon. So I'm like- Are you,
0: are you a big Congo fan? I kind of do like Congo. It's terrible. Okay. Maybe <laughs> we should do that sometime. I like Congo too. Congo is so dumb. But anyway, what I don't like in this movie, I mean, there are a lot of things, but the thing I think I hate the most is comes gets set up next. And that is that story, the Narf, needs a writer to to speak to, a writer who is writing something important. And so we get this sort of sequence where uh, Paul Giamatti is going around the complex looking for somebody who's a writer, who's writing something important. And we meet a bunch of characters here. We meet Mary Beth Hurt, who's this older lady, Mrs. Bell. And she takes in animals and we see a butterfly by her. That's going to come into play later. We get Jeffrey Wright as Mr. Dury, who's like a single dad who's got a a young kid and he likes to do crossword puzzles and his son likes to look at cereal boxes and find weird meanings in them. That'll matter later, of course. Uh, We get this group of guys who just hang out in a room smoking cigarettes, talking shit, I guess. Um, One of whom is Jared Harris, Who's like a great actor, and like, what the fuck is he doing in this? Like, he he doesn't even have—I don't know if he has a line or he like no he no says he, he's
2: like he's like the leader of the smokers. He's the
0: leader of the smokers, but it's not. He's ugh, it's like, why do you put put this good of an actor in this minor of a role? And then well, the worst part, we <laughs> meet M Knight himself in the movie. As a he's li- uh, living with uh, his sister in the movie, not in real life, played by Sarita Chaudhry, who's a famous Indian-American actress. They are living together, and he is this writer who's having trouble with the thing that he's working on. Paul Giamatti sort of goes into his study to fix a light and sees that he's working on this thing called the cookbook. And... He asks M. Night Shyamalan about it, and, you know, he, you know, they're j- joking around thinking that it's really a cookbook, but really it's this book of ideas. And, you know, Story is looking for this person who's writing this thing that will inspire a change in society. And the fucking dude who wrote this stupid fucking movie is playing that guy. Has there ever been anything ever in the history of movies, so a bolder display of unwarranted ego in the history of cinema? I don't know if there has been. Rodney, what do you think?
2: I, I would really have to take some time and some internet searches to find one. But it really, it really takes a certain kind of person to create a character who is a writer whose writing is so important that it will change the world. And then cast himself in the role of that character. It is so ridiculous. And it doesn't help that, like, look, I don't mind M. Night Shyamalan popping up, doing his little couple lines as cameos in most movies. But he's like the third main character of this movie. Yeah. He is in so much of this fucking movie, and he is so fucking bad.
1: Well, I hadn't... When I saw this the first time, I was still awake. I hadn't dozed off yet, because I did remember that he was in this film. But I, like Rodney had just said, I'm used to him just having his cameos, which I'm totally fine with. Like, I'm fine with him popping up and just like, oh, you know, it's like fun. It's like, oh, there's M. Night, you know, when he's doing the film. What I didn't remember was I remembered he had a what I thought was a cameo, but what I didn't remember until we watched today is that yes, he's like made himself so fucking important i I just can't even I just can't even like with the with what his what he's writing like that we're gonna like have him as like one of the main characters for the rest of the film like i it just the whole time I'm just like. Are you kidding me? Like, I I just was not when I saw him this watch, I was like, oh, yeah, he's in this. Like, I didn't remember he was in it for the rest of the film.
2: He's in the movie more than the scrunt.
0: (laughs) And not to the film's benefit,
2: I might add. Uh, I do want to say that the premise is something I like. This is one of the things I really like about the movie, because they set this up in the intro that like what the Narfs do is they have like they inspire creative thinking in humans. Right. Yeah. And I like the idea that there's a character who's writing this, like, book of philosophy that is so important that it will actually shape human history, you know? Sure, yeah. And, and, and later in the film when that's explained, I think it's really touching. And it's kind of it, – it, it works for me. It's just so dumb that M. Night Shyamalan chose himself to play that character. Yeah. Dude, be one of the guys smoking cigarettes, right? Be anyone else in the movie, not the writer yeah. writing the most important thing in the world.
1: It's such just like, wow. That's exactly it, Rodney. Is like, don't like if you wanted, even if yes, if you want to have more screen time than just your usual like small cameo, yes, be one of the smokers. That would have been fine. But this like self importance of like, I'm the one that's written this like manifesto or whatever of like, it just was such like a, just my eyes can't stop rolling.
2: It's hard because I'm, I am like his work so much, but it's hard to separate that from the man who is clearly so full of himself. Like, I've never heard of anything sillier than building a $70 million apartment building so you don't have to drive too far, right?
0: Right. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and, I, and I do think we have to, like, recognize that, like, this is, I think, who he was at a certain point in his life. I feel yes. like he's definitely, like, come back to reality after, you know other films and you know it's it's i i don't think i think this is just like who he was at the time where he was like Mm -hmm. i'm like i'm on top of the world like i'll do what i want and we're like getting him kind of at his worst so to speak as far as like ego and you know just um just... He
0: is getting so high on his own fucking supply, it's not even funny. <laughs> That's what I like, he's got like yeah. a m he's got a like a, a scarface mountain of ego cocaine <laughs> that he's like face down in, like <laughs> You know, I'm sure he just doesn't touch drugs, but oh, my God, was he high on himself. Yes. Like, he's chopping up rails of M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> and fucking sniffing them. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable.
1: That's a great, great visual.
0: And, uh, yeah, it's – I don't think there's anything that's ever offended me more. And, I mean, I can't think – I mean – Uh, To me personally, this really just absolutely just rubs me completely the wrong way. But let's not linger on it. I think we've (laughs) said our piece. So what we learn now is that uh, we learn about Cleveland's tragic backstory because, of course, he has one. He was a doctor and his wife and child were killed by a burglar. I'm assuming he wasn't home or whatever. And he came home and they were dead. And now he feels that he his life has no purpose. You know, and this is a big hit you over the head theme of this movie is that, you know, to find your purpose. That's basically the main theme. But, you know, it's a fine theme. I'm not going to criticize it too badly. But, yeah, then we get uh, we get this meeting of the M. Night character and story. And when the, the writer, you know, everybody gets these titles like the Guild and the Healer and the Ter- Interpreter. You know all of this insufferable shit, but the the uh the writer when he sees story he's gonna feel like moved by her. He's he's gonna feel like prickly sensation in his body, and then he's gonna you know his writer's block will now be gone, and he'll go off to write the manifesto that's gonna change humanity. She is the catalyst for it. So yeah, that happens. I like this scene.
2: You know, like I
0: do. I, I think.
2: I do. I like he comes in and like they, they like they make eyes. And this is maybe the one time in the movie where his acting isn't terrible. Like I see that like he's feeling something
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I get it. She like unlocks his writer's block. Yeah. And he's like, I got to go right. And backing up just briefly, I feel like a, at least the, the the first five M. Night Shyamalan, like when I the sixth sense through this movie, they're all about someone's like thinking they're nobody yeah and then coming to realize they their purpose is grander than they ever could have imagined yeah they're all crisis of faith stories in one way or another mm-hmm. and I really like that story mm-hmm. I'll take that story over and over and over right and I think that's why I respond so well to these so I like the whole Cleveland heap you know his 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 I wish it wasn't delivered the way it is it's like For some, I guess he just writes about this in his journal and story like reads his journal. And then she basically looks into the camera and is like, I know why you're sad. You had a wife and a kid, a man broke in. He killed them. And he's like, please don't read my journal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, exposition delivered. But to be fair, the whole movie is people looking into the camera and just telling you things. Yeah. But I think that makes sense because I like knowing, oh, like he's a broken man. And that's why he's just like, he's sort of hiding in this apartment just like, yeah killing bugs and shit that works for me so i i like this part of the movie i it's probably the highlight for me
0: does bryce dallas howard work for you in this role i
2: think my answer is no i she's doing like i'm a weirdo from another world thing right yeah i want to tell here's here's what it comes down to does she seem like a weirdo yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) but do i like her i don't right like i don't i don't like the character it's not like I feel about like Ariel and the little mermaid, right? And that's a problem. Like you should want me to like your weirdo nymph girl or narf, right? But I'm sorry, I just don't. I no matter how many times I watch the movie, I I tolerate her, but there's just something about her performance that's so fucking frustrating and annoying.
1: I mean, she's fine, whatever. It's it, I I feel like it's more that I'm just frustrated with her character because and I know this is part of the whole thing. Is it's like why can't you just fucking tell us what we need to do? Oh, you know God, what I mean? Like yeah. it's just the the drag, and I I understand, and it's just that that's part of it. But I feel like we could have cut out. Like this film is two fucking hours long, and it's no, like don't
0: fucking understand it because it doesn't deserve <laughs> to be understood. It's basically this arbitrary thing where there are these rules that she has to follow. Yeah, and it's basically a narrative device that's set up. To just make you fucking frustrated. I mean, and and it's like, it's to, it's, you know, because they need to, he needs to structure this thing like a mystery where there's going to be all these reveals.
1: And they're just, there's not.
0: There's just this arbitrary thing where, well, she can't really say what she needs you to do, except when she can. Yeah. When she does.
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So I find her character to be frustrating I don't know who else I would have put in that spot so you know I, I think she, she's a good actor I don't know
0: oh yeah definitely
2: yeah I can't imagine it's not like putting a different actress in the role would change it the character itself is is frustrating Yeah. and yeah like, like I get that you need some mystery but just how about you just fucking explain to me all the shit I need to know instead of us having to go to like you know the Korean mother three times right Yeah. like there's no reason for her to be like oh there's rules but I can't tell you Right.
0: Why? Why
2: not? Because she tells her apology Maudi a lot of other things.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly my point.
1: And then going to the Korean mom and getting version of the the bedtime story which isn't like completely accurate because it's a fucking bedtime story like who knows what her her grandma told her you know what i mean like it's not like written in stone and like because as we find out i mean as we go along with the story it's like just wrong turns everywhere and and interpretations on up on top of interpretations that are wrong
2: i don't know if i agree with you i think it's like 90 percent accurate I feel like pretty much everything the the mom says comes to pass.
1: No, I mean they, or or I guess maybe they're misinterpreting it or something because there's like there's people that she says that are players in this whole thing that aren't at all.
2: No, no, but I mean she says like basically Paul Giamatti picks the wrong people. Like he's he identifies them incorrectly, but they're yes. still they're still those people. Like there is a guardian, there is a healer. I don't know if there is a guild or not.
0: Well, a lot of that stuff comes out of this extremely frustrating scene that will come later. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll let's come to that. let's we'll, we'll come to that. because It doesn't all come from the the Korean mom. She kind of gives the overview, but then once we get into like more details, we'll, we'll get to it cuz I fucking hate that scene. What at this point what happens is Story tries to go back into the water, which is the pool, and she's attacked again. And um, scratched up and everything the, by the scrunt. And this is a, a thing because the scrunt wasn't supposed to attack. The scrunt is breaking the rules. So now we have more rules. And it, like it's funny, Rodney, because... I think of you a lot when rules and stuff come up because you're. I feel like you're a real stickler for the rules.
2: I am. I'm a rule stickler. You
0: are a rule stickler. And I feel like the rules in this movie are just so arbitrary and they're just like thrown like, okay, so now the scrunt – can is not supposed to attack her because she's seen the she's seen the the writer so she should be able to go back to the pool but oh no the scrunt did attack her and that wasn't supposed to happen <laughs> because now the scrunt isn't following the rules. Oh, God.
2: This is- you know what? It's like, the, it's not that the movie violates rules, it just keeps adding new ones. And it's like little kids playing like, like, right, like yes. cowboys and in Indians, yes. right? Yes. And so you're like, I got you. And he's like, I have an invisible shield. And he's like, Okay, well, I have bullets to go through invisible shields, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, and so, it, yeah, it's like, what, what's also confusing is she's not like going back to the pool, she's going to go stand by the pool and the great eat lawn which i don't know why you don't just call it an eagle but the great eat will come and take her away and what's also like this is just like you want to get really nerdy when how long has she been in the pool because that's a whole scene we can talk about later when he goes well it's coming up
0: right after this basically
2: but yeah she gets attacked and it's like oh yo i i i I thought you're supposed to just get picked up and she's like well Clearly that scrunt didn't get the memo that like he can't attack. Then it's like, why can he attack? And is this when we find out she's like
0: more than we know? I'll let you narrate. So that she's means. the Madam Narf, which is a super <laughs> special Narf. Right. Okay. So she's not just a <laughs> Narf. <laughs> she's a Madam Narf. And like, we're supposed to be like, oh ooh, my God. I <laughs> mean, this whole time I thought I was just watching a Narf, but I've really been watching a Madam Narf oh my god
2: how is this story going to resolve (laughs) and so like i'm not sure why the scrunt would even be there i guess i guess he came specifically because he knows she's a madam narf yeah
0: they say the scrunt like will do anything to stop a madam narf so that's why he's breaking the rules because it's so much more important
1: the stakes are high
0: And I just want to say, like, I can hear M. Night Shyamalan listening to this, not that he will, but and he'll be, you know, he'd be saying the defense, I'm sure, would be. This is, you know, but this is for children. You know, this is how a children's story would go. And you're cynical and old and don't understand it. But it's like, this isn't a children's story because no kid is going to want to watch this apartment full of depressed schlubs. This is, n- oh, this is not a children's story.
2: There's only one kid in it. And he's not in that much. Right. And like, listen, Knight, if you're listening, I like this movie, <laughs> but I still have to tell you it's bad. You made a bad movie. It's really <laughs> bad. Can I just tell you a personal peeve that I don't know if it's going to be on your list to cover? I don't feel like the dimensions of the courtyard are big enough to warrant the movie. Like, Uh it keeps bothering me how, like, she looks out and she's like, oh my God, I gotta get to that pool. But, like, it's like seven steps away, (laughs) right? right? (laughs) (laughs) And there's, like, somewhere out there there's a killer scrunt. But, like, there's only, like, six square feet of grass, right? Like it's not that big. Yeah, totally. And so like, I get when you watch the village, you're like, those monsters could be
0: anywhere in the woods,
2: but like the whole movie is based around the fact that this girl can't like make it eight steps to the pool.
0: It'd be like if a parking lot, like I need to cross the parking. How am I going to do it? (laughs) (laughs) oh man anyway i just had to say that i just feel like no i totally agree with you it doesn't feel there's nothing about it that feels expansive or vast and like considering the fact that he had all this leeway in which to build this thing you think he could have you know make it all crazy oversized it was like he, he was like well i want this to be like the exact dimensions of a shabby apartment complex that you'd find in the uh, you know outside of uh, Philadelphia, and it's like, yeah, but that's not a great visual, you know, for your fucking fantasy movie.
2: Yeah, the, your 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 epic fantasy movie confined to this like Soviet era prison block. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Or just make it more treacherous, or something, to get to the pool, or something. I don't know. Or there's another gate you have to go through, or some some sort of something. It didn't. I don't know. It's yes. It's just steps there's away. There's a fucking
0: reason why fantasy stories take place in castles and forests and shit, because that shit's epic. So she gets scratched up, and
2: also, how come we never see the scrunt like actually attack? The camera like lunges at story. And then it just cuts to her on the floor and she's got some like scratches on her legs. And she's like, it attacked me. And I'm like,
0: where's that fucking scene? Did you forget to shoot it? So anyway, the scrun attacks. And so now we find that these scratches that she's got have poisoned her. They figure out somehow that Cleveland Heap has got to go find where she lives and get this. Oh, they call it something like the High. key or, or, or something like
1: that. Oh, is
0: that what they're, I thought they said a muddy key? Yeah, well, it's like a no, it's not a key like into a lock. The word is like key or Kai. Uh, and that's okay. like for the muddy balm that will take the poison out of her or something. Okay. I stopped writing down these names at this point because I was just so fucking annoyed with them. So we get this scene where Paul Giamatti dives into the pool and he goes to the little great at the bottom of the pool i guess and pulls it up and then goes into this subterranean underwater pool cave and he's holding this schlubby dude is holding his breath this whole time like longer than (laughs) yeah tom cruise did in mission impossible five and so he's in this pool and i mean it's okay i'll give the movie this the underground cave is kind of cool there's some writing on the wall she's taken all these things from around the pool that she's found and she's put them underneath glasses for some reason which is very convenient because Paul Giamatti figures out that he can take a pen and hollow it out and suck some air from the glass underneath the glasses
1: he's a doctor he knows how to do things of course he would know how to MacGyver a breathing apparatus in the 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 NARF cave uh, <laughs> and then and then, yeah, well, no, I, we we're watching this and I was like, God, he's still holding his breath like it was it was bananas. And then he he picks up this thing that looks like fool's gold or something like that. And and that's supposed to be the mud salve. I, I still yeah. am so confused. It looked like some sort of gemstone sort of or some sort. Yeah, I, don't I think know. we're to
0: assume that it's hardened into this sort of rock or whatever. It's mud or something that's hardened into a rock.
2: There is literally no explanation for what should I be looking for and where would yeah. I find it? Like right. he goes to this room and it looks like Ariel's like treasure room. There's like, it looks like the end of last crusade. There's like hundreds of glasses. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I'm like, bro, like you only got so much air on your lungs, right? Do you know what you're looking for? And it, and like, he just knows it's this fucking like chunk of mud under a glass. And I'm right. like, I, what the, I don't even know what it is. And then you never even see her use it. Like, you don't even know how it works. Nope. Like, I feel like literally he went to go shoot the rest of the movie and they're like, bro, you used all the money building the apartment. There's no (laughs) film left for the camera. And he said, all right, we'll just cut together what we got. This scene is so offensive. It's so dumb, dude. Why is there a magic room in the pool? This pool gets used by like hundreds of people, right? Right. why has no one discovered there's a fucking door? It's not like it's not like a little grate. There's like a fucking big fucking door that has to fit Paul Giamatti through it. Yeah. It's got a hinge and it's like like made of rock and shit. Like no one's ever noticed the door. And also, what the fuck? Why does she have a room there? I thought she I just know. came on a I thought she came on a mission.
0: And once the mission is done, she goes home. Like, how did she get to the pool and then there's a like cave waiting there for her or something like did the eagle drop her off one day like in the middle of the night and was like just here's your new place there's a there's a there's a room under that pool all you got to do is just chill for a while steal some shit from around the apartment complex and then you know one day you're gonna meet the guy that's gonna help you get through i mean just the threads of logic just come unraveled instantly. Honestly, that's that's how the conversation went. The eagle, like, dropped
2: her off, and she was like a little girl. And, she, and he said, so listen, once you see the writer come on home, and she's like, how long will that take? And he said, I don't know. You should probably just, you
1: should probably just, like, make a room in the pool. And just stay down there for like a decade or so. (laughs) And gather some trinkets. (laughs) And this
2: whole time she's just been living in the pool, waiting for M. Night Shyamalan to move in.
0: Yeah. (sighs) And I think they've been there a while. So she she, she probably could have come out like five years ago. I mean, I guess the only thing you can argue is that
2: she is waiting for all the important people to move in and basically why couldn't wouldn't you
0: just set this story like by a lake or by <laughs> an ocean? Like why does it have to be a pool? Like that just seems like one of those things where it's like, wouldn't it be cool if the mermaid came from a pool? <laughs> Yeah, that would be cool, and then you're like, "But how would she get there?" No, 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 no! <laughs> Don't think about that.
2: <laughs> I already told you, an eagle dropped her off and told her there's a magic room, and she lived in the room. Obviously, uh,
0: no. you could have just have them live by the water, like friggin' Aquaman. As like ridiculous as that movie is, created a more plausible scenario. <laughs> like, like, at least Aquaman's dad lived by the friggin' ocean. Like, yeah. Yeah, this whole scene is friggin' ridiculous. It is kind of fun to watch Paul Giamatti sort of flounder around in this underwater cave, though. Yeah, he gets out of the pools, and we learn about the Tartutic, the monkey law keepers, and we learn about Madame Narf and how she's a special Narf, and we get more about how M. M. Night's book is going to lead to great change. I mean, it sounds like I'm frustrated with this movie already, right? But the reality is I'm not... As frustrated nearly as I'm going to be. And I mean, I feel that this movie is really proves the sort of point that when you're enjoying a movie, you cut it so much slack. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to a lot of people tearing shit apart, like the way we're tearing this movie apart now. And It's always funny to me, the sort of hypocrisy that goes on, like one movie will have just as many plot holes as some other movie, but because the movie worked overall, they don't tear apart the plot holes. And then when they hate the movie, every single stupid little thing bugs the shit out of everybody. Like, that's just the way it goes. The reality is most movies, if they don't deal with strict historical reality, are full of fucking plot holes. And you can always find them if you want to look hard enough. So I don't really give people credit like, oh, you're so smart. You figured out a plot hole. I also think a lot of times that the people who make these stuff, they know the plot holes are there. They just don't fucking care. They want to just, you know, move the story forward. There's plot holes through lots of movies. But you don't care because the movie is so fucking good. I mean, this movie isn't good. So, like, I'm not loving all the plot holes. But then we get to this part. And this is where we learn about all the characters who are going to be able to to help the Narf on her journey home. And this is where things get all the more complicated. Because now, like, well, we can help the Narf but we've got to find the guild and we've got to find the healer and the interpreter. And like, Oh my God, it just becomes this deluge of tiresome exposition as they try to figure out all which quirky characters around the apartment complex are going to fit these roles. And Oh my God, at this point, I (laughs) fucking hate the movie. Like I hate it.
2: Look, there's things I like and things I don't. I like the idea that, all these people have been drawn to this apartment building because they all have like unfulfilled destinies. Yeah, I don't
0: dislike that idea.
2: I'll tell you, in this viewing, it occurred to me what... Let me just put it this way. I think the music in this movie is really good. I think Mm -hmm. it's James Newton Howard, right? Yeah. And there are multiple sequences when someone's explaining something and the score is like swelling. It gets to me and I'm like, oh my God, yeah, this is cool. But this time watching it, I was like, I feel like I'm just being swayed by the music. Cause what's actually happening here is stupid. <laughs> like I, I hate how they're like, she's like, I can't tell you anything. And so M night Shyamalan's sister puts her in the shower oh. and is like, how about I ask you questions and you don't have to say anything. Just like touch your hair or, or like touch a body part. Yeah. And that way I'll know it's a yes. And, what proceeds is like the world's most awkward Q and a session. And I don't know why it's like, are you trying to tell me that like the mystical magical rules of the Narf kingdom can be broken by like such an absurd childish rule of touching your ear?
0: Yeah. The sister character explains that when she was a kid, she would to not get her friends in trouble. She developed this way of communicating with her mom where she would raise or touch her ear or whatever, instead of actually ratting out her friends And so, you know, this is why they're playing this game. But the reasons as to why she can't just say what she needs are never made clear.
1: It's just one exasperated sigh after another from here on out, really. I mean, it's just so much explaining, but then not explaining. Like you like you said, it's like, oh, we get the whole like the sister saying, you know, this is why I did this. So I wasn't narking on my friends. And not to mention, like, she's doing way more than touching her ear. It looks like she's, like, like a baseball pitcher throwing signs to the catcher. I don't even know what's yeah. going on. Like, what? I'm, there's way more, like, hand gestures. I can't keep up. But, like, yeah, we, we don't know why that's okay. Like, it's just... It's well, right,
0: and she's making these hand gestures, and then... The sister character is like, that means we need a healer. And like the the extrapolation going on between this like shower gesturing, like, oh, this is what we need. Like, and everybody's just convinced like, oh, this is definitely what it what it is. It reminded me like when I was a little kid in first grade, I convinced my friends that I was a werewolf (laughs) and that I was going out at night as a (laughs) werewolf killing people. And, like, they believed me. (laughs) Like
2: (laughs) In college, I once convinced a girl that pastrami was a vegetable. (laughs) (laughs) And at first she didn't believe me, and I just kept insisting. And then she was like, really? That's fascinating. I had no idea. And I was like. No, it's fucking meat. What are you talking about? Right.
0: And I I mean, look, and maybe not to get too political or whatever, but maybe just the world we're living in right now makes this all the more hard for me to deal with, you know, yeah. like this scenario in which somebody's just saying a bunch of shit that's like makes that has like is completely insane and everyone's just going along with it and like extrapolating this ridiculousness from it. It's just really hard for me to take. It was hard for me to take then, but I think now it's even harder for me to take.
2: Here's the thing that I think this is what this is this scene that really runs the movie off the rails. And yes. and I think here's why, right? Because a more easy to understand version is like this this narf comes to the world, she has a mission, but she's like going back home is really dangerous. And I need these things. I need the healer, I need the protector, I need the guild, right? And then the movie would be about getting her home. But the movie's rules are that like she really just has to like get a ride on the eagle. But there's the fact that she's a Madam Narf is what causes the scrunt to be able to attack her, which ruins the whole thing. And then it's like basically there's a contingency plan in the rare exception that if there is a Madam Narf and it gets attacked by a rogue scrunt in that scenario specifically, then there's a guild and a protector and a healer and an interpreter and they'll all be needed. And I'm like, bro, why are you overcomplicating it? Just give me all that shit at the beginning so that it's a mystery as opposed to an hour into the movie.
1: And I think, Rodney, that's why I was saying earlier regarding um, the Korean mom's telling of the tale. And I was thinking that she had gotten it wrong because of what you just talked about now. Because it's like, oh, there's a special circumstance and this and that, and so that's. I think that's where I got confused.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's like she tells the story, and then (laughs) story. She tells the story, and then the character story gets attacked, and then Cleveland goes back to the Korean woman, and she, he's like, why would a scrunt attack a narf? And she's like, oh, well, if it were a madam narf then it would
0: happen and he's like yes. oh well say that's okay. the case tell me more okay right? okay
1: right. yeah that- that's what it was okay because that all makes sense sure
0: so th- what they determine they need to do as they're so they you know they they have this whole extrapolation where they figured out all these different roles that they need to you know figure out who's who and of course the guys that are the smokers are the guild and of course the, the woman with the cats is the healer and of course uh Jeffrey Wright with his crossword puzzles as the interpreter and blah, blah, blah. they He gets them all together. They're all on board. He, he explains, you know, Cleveland explains to them that that's what their role in this insanity is. And they're all like, oh, OK, cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds about right. But they determine like the thing they need to do is they need to throw a party, <laughs> a block party. <laughs> They've got to throw a block party So that they can can throw off the scrunt.
1: The scent. With the scent of all these people. Yeah, of this rager,
0: this rager, this kegger. (laughs) Like, you know, if your fantasy story involves a kegger, you've gone in the wrong direction.
2: I want you to just imagine someone knocks on your door and it's like your upstairs neighbor. And he's like, yo, Sebastian, Jen, I got to ask you guys a favor. Listen, there's this girl who's actually from a Magic Kingdom world, right? And she's being hunted by this grass wolf. (laughs) And I need your help because she said you're the chosen wayfinder and you're the lock master. (laughs) Will you come help me? Grab your guitar, Jen, grab like a compass, right? And you guys just instantly going, like, we're here to help. That's what good neighbors are. (laughs) The movie just skips over all of that. Every single person in this apartment building is like, Absolutely, I'll help you on your mystical quest to get this kidnapped girl home to her eagle companion.
1: (laughs) Rodney, I wouldn't have even opened the door.
2: (laughs) Everyone in this building is so talkative, except for the the critic, because the critic is unfriendly to everyone. Can you imagine
0: if this happened
1: in our apartment in North Hollywood? That's why I'm like, no, that's why I was like, I wouldn't have even opened
2: the door. I would have looked out and been like, nope. Like, all it would take is a scene where he gathers everyone, like, you know, in his hut and like tells them and convinces them.
0: Well, how about having them not believe it and then showing story do something incredibly magical. That worked. Yep, that would work. Yep. Like the, like in every other story that ever I'll show written. you the magic room under the pool that none of you knew about, right. right? Like have them not believe it and then prove it to them somehow. Like that's like screenwriting 101. And this guy's, like, the highest paid, like, genre director in Hollywood at this point. And yeah, he can't even be bothered with this shit. And here's the thing. It's because M. Night Shyamalan is a man of faith, and he really believes in magic, and he believes in magical thinking. And Not to disparage spirituality or anything, but, I mean, so much of his movies are about faith. So, I mean, I feel like he doesn't want to deal with that kind of thing because he's like no you should just blindly believe that this is the truth i will buy that like their purpose is
2: to do these things therefore when the calling comes they're just like i just feel in my heart i i'm supposed to believe you but it comes across really goofy also just like just from a, a standard like easy directing thing he sets up that whole scene with her touching her ear and her hair because like the sister doesn't like because I guess she doesn't want them to be looking at her in the shower, right like she's like yeah. you got you men stand over in the doorway and I'll ask questions right but then right after that, everyone comes in the bathroom and they're all like watching her in the shower and I'm like, well, which is it we allowed to look at her in the shower or not
0: <laughs> I think Knight wanted to look at her in the shower <laughs> about what was going
2: on I remember being in the theater thinking I was good with all the rules until now, but suddenly i'm starting to it's starting to occur to me that we're never going to be done explaining rules. You're going to just keep adding on. Yeah. And it's getting silly. Yes.
0: Yeah, and so they have this scene where Story's got a walkie-talkie, Cle- and Cleveland and Story have walkie-talkies, mm-hmm. and he's going out to the, he's going out to where the sprinklers are, and he's looking with a mirror to see if he can see the scrunt, and the he can see the scrunt, and then the scrunt is coming up, and then he, but he can't. He's supposed to be able to hypnotize the scrunt because he's the the, <laughs> the protector, the protector or, the or whatever, and, and like so this should be the the dead giveaway that he's gotten this shit all wrong, right? Like. He can't fucking hypnotize the scrunt, and like he used to be a doctor. <laughs> yes, one of the people they need is a healer. It doesn't fucking occur to him, like, hey, maybe I'm not the protector. Maybe I'm the healer. Like, <sighs> but but up
2: to this point, he has been protecting her. Yeah, you know what I mean. He's been her right. guardian. Yes. There's also there's something that happens in this scene that I have to talk about because it, it bothers me to no end. Please. While she's on, the, <laughs> while she's on the fucking walkie talkie she says do you see the jg scrunt did you hear that when she said it she refers to the she says it twice she refers to the jg scrunt okay and then he says like it's not backing down and she goes you're telling me the jg scrunt isn't backing down and to this day i cannot find out what why does she call it a jg scrunt i've gone on internet forums Uh i've literally (laughs) i i'm not joking I have tweeted to M Night Shyamalan to get an wow. answer, and I have not gotten an answer. Go back and watch the scene. She, why does she please use the don't letters JG?
1: No. <laughs> I want. I trust you, Rodney. I don't want to go back there.
2: If anybody listening knows this, please get in touch with Sebastian, and then he can email me. Please.
0: Are you sure she didn't say like G D, like God? No, nope. dude.
2: I turned on the subtitles,
0: and it's J G. J G,
2: you know, funny, funny story. The second time, so I saw this in theaters, like I said, and then I liked it enough that I was like, I want to go see it a second time. And the second time I saw oh my it, God, <laughs> I, I know. The second time I went and saw it, I went. I didn't know this, but I went to like a a screening that was for deaf people, so it had subtitles. Uh huh. And the, I suddenly was like, Oh, she's saying Tartutic. She's saying yeah. Narf. Like I could understand because I was reading along. And I remember it saying JG Scrunt and being like, "Is that his
0: full name?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm JG Scrunt. I'm gonna build a railroad through your town.
2: <laughs> I'm telling
0: you. I'm telling the you. The Scrunt Express is coming through. <laughs> and then, and then,
2: last night when I was rewatching it, I was like, "I got to just make sure." And I turned to the subtitles, and I was like, "Yeah, JG, no
0: explanation." Well, I have to think that at one point. The scrunt was called the JG scrunt and it probably got edited out. You know, like as the director and the editor, you probably had to watch this movie like 800 times, right? Those poor fucking souls.
2: (laughs) At some point. God rest
0: their souls.
2: (laughs) Why did no one say, why is she saying JG scrunt? Shouldn't we take that out?
1: I didn't notice, Rodney, because I think this was the point when I said, Sebastian, that I felt like she was the dungeon master. Was this the time when that happened? Yes. Because it was (laughs) like... I felt like it was all of a sudden it was so much Dungeons and Dragons happening when he was like on yes. the other end. And she was like, I mean, it was just a whole nother language. And I was like, what is happening now? Like it was, <laughs> so I didn't notice JG Scrant, which sounds to me like, um, what is that? Like insurance, the general or something like that. Like the chief. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs>
2: JG Scrant
1: <laughs> will save you 10% on your auto insurance. I-
2: Ask for JG. <laughs> <laughs> Also, this scene bugs me because, like, why is it happening? This is one of those things where, like, M. Night Shyamalan is like, wouldn't it be cool if they're talking over walkie-talkies? But, like, why don't they just have a conversation? Like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out there. You're going right. to look in the mirror. You're going to say these words. Yeah. So it's like saying, I'm going to teach you how to fly a rocket. But instead of trying to go over it first, just get in the rocket and I'll walk <laughs> you through it step by step as we go. <laughs>
1: that's what the scene and is as like. you've pointed out rodney with the logistics of like the layout of of the apartment because they could have just kept the door open and like yes. whisper yeah. loudly <laughs> <laughs> it's literally eight
2: steps away from his door it's so and like and again this apartment building is huge and like Nobody's ever out you know like people are always hanging out on the balcony smoking in apartments this apartment this apartment
0: building's got like 8 floors it's, it's huge like massive it's
1: towers. It is and massive towers
2: and and everyone's balcony looks out into the courtyard yeah. so nobody is noticing the like the superintendent fight a a wolf monster, right? <laughs> like no one notices the Eagle coming. No one notices anything. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I don't know why out
0: of I everything just, in the movie. I'm incredulous that you're incredulous <laughs> at this point. Like really at this point you're finding
2: the, like you're... I'm just going to tweet at M. Night Shyamalan every week. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like Andy Dufresne in the, in the Shawshank redemption. <laughs> and I'm just going to write a letter <laughs> once a week until I get my library. <laughs>
1: Everything from now on will be hashtag JG scrunt. <laughs> Get it trending.
0: Speaking of M. Knight, it, this is the point where we find out that he is going to be a martyr. So it's not just that he wrote the, he's writing the book. That's going to change the world. He's going to be murdered for it because the ideas in this book are going to be so revolutionary. And I just think about my time working in a library and seeing all the like books that are in the library that nobody's getting murdered over and i pictured <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's really hard to write a book that's like i mean i think the last time somebody wrote a book that they threatened to murder somebody over was like the satanic verses uh salman Rushdie. like you'd have to be coming up with some salman Rushdie like shit the satanic verses are not too good but the chorus is really <laughs> <laughs> good hook Oh,
2: man. Sorry. I had
0: to. So, yeah, um, he's going to M. Knight's going to write this book and he's going to get murdered for it. So I guess she can predict the future or see into the future.
2: She definitely can. not She says multiple times that she can see the future. She frequently says to people, do you want to know your future? Yes. But she can't
0: tell them about
2: it. Uh,
0: but she That's can. True. It, she's like, or, yo,
2: I can't tell you anything about the blue world, but I can tell you about if your she can future. see
0: the future. Can't. Why doesn't she say, hey, look, you've got all these categories right?
2: i really love this part i gotta be honest I, i pretty much everything that revolves around this plot line i'm a sucker for i really like the scene where he where she explains how his book will like basically lead to this little boy growing up with those thoughts and he'll become the president but i think it's i think it's really touching when he asks about whether he'll survive and she basically says no if you write the book you get killed and i i i don't i think it's really powerful that even with that knowledge he decides to go forward with it it
0: would be powerful in a whole nother movie maybe i i i'll concede to you that it's not a bad idea on paper but you know
2: when you watch a really bad horror movie but there's a couple like really good kills in it and you're like sure. i i love that part that's what some of shyamalan's films are like for me the movie itself can be really bad but there will be these little parts where characters have a little scene that yeah. i'm just like this is why I'm here, right? And this is one of those moments
0: for me. Well, listen, man, you don't have to tell me about this shit. I mean, come on. Like, you've well, done nothing but make fun of me. You've done nothing <laughs> but make fun of me for, like, four podcasts about how I find the <laughs> the delicious kernels of the corn in, in these turds. That should be – got to put that at the
2: top of each episode. That's what
0: your podcast is. Now you've found where I've drawn my limits. Like, there are places that I cannot even go to. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is one of and them. And in those dark places where you'll find me Colonel hunting
2: the <laughs> Like Gollum. <laughs> Lady in the water, precious.
0: <laughs> I just can't get on board at this point. I can't, I'm so hate, I hate the whole idea of the guy who's made the movie setting himself up as this character. You know, you're right. If it had been another person playing it, maybe I'd be able to go with it a little more. But I just can't. And it doesn't, I don't feel anything but seething, seething hatred. He's like looking into his own eyes and telling himself he's a fucking genius who's worthy of martyrdom. <laughs> yeah. I know it's difficult to
2: separate yourself from that, but like, I mean, it's hard because you're watching and that's M. Night Shyamalan, right? But like, he is There's a character. There's no way to separate
0: yourself from it. How do you do it?
2: Like, how? I just remind myself that he's a character named Victor, he's just uh-huh. some dude. It just doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you, obviously.
1: And me? Um, right,
2: yeah. Again, his acting is terrible. That's the main problem. Right.
0: So you've got nothing to hold on to here. I mean, yeah, you're 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 just holding on to the actual on-paper idea. But like the scene isn't good, the acting isn't good, like the fact that it's the guy making the movie makes it fucking horrible. <laughs>
2: I think the scene I think the scene is good. I I like the scene. I think there's there's a handful of scenes in the movie that I just like. And every time I watch it, the rest of the movie around it gets dumber and dumber with each viewing. But the couple scenes that I like, they just shine for me every time and I'm like, it was worth watching it again to see that scene.
1: I agree with Rodney like the idea is good, I but I'm totally with Sebastian where I'm like I just can't. I can't with M Night and I also was sitting here thinking because I have been on a number of podcasts with the two of you of how the tables have turned, Sebby, <laughs> because it's usually Sebastian who's, you know, liked something. Uh, and, and I'm right there with him because we've watched it like 10 times and we're like, hey, there's some good things there. And Rodney's like going, are you guys insane? This movie's terrible. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's totally, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're through the looking glass. I mean,
2: to be fair, I don't think I've ever met someone who likes this movie. You know, right. like, I, I feel like it's me and M. Night Shyamalan. And that's why I feel like he should reply to my tweet, because, like, I'm the one person that liked his movie. I think
0: there are other people that like it. Even his kids are probably like, I much preferred it when it was just a bedtime story. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's a bedtime story. It might have been fine. Sure. I don't want to criticize it as that, no. but as a movie, it is poison to my soul. You know when
2: people talk about? Like, if I had a time machine, what I, where I'd go, what I'd want to witness. I'd want to go to premiere night and sit right behind M. Night Shyamalan (laughs) and his two daughters. And the credits roll and he turns up with a smile on his face and is like, what'd you think, kids? And they're like, they just stare
0: at him and like, I loved it, Dad. It was really good. I don't want to, you know, look, like I I like the guy more or less. You know, I, I think I enjoy his movies and I don't want to, I don't have a problem with M. Night Shyamalan. I just think that this movie is just ego run rampant. Um, I, I completely agree this is and then sometimes there's nothing wrong with that but in this case there's something very 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 deeply deeply wrong with it yes yep so they they throw their party and just the whole plan of this party doesn't make any sense because the plan is okay so the idea is they don't want anybody to notice this thing happening so of course what you do is you throw a party So that everybody's there. But then, okay, so there are all these people there. But then what they do is there's going to be this band that's going to play in one of the rooms, this rock band, which I appreciate. They're going to start playing and then everybody's going to go run to see the rock band. Let me just say right there, flaw in your plan. Because (laughs) I've been in many rock bands, some of them are pretty good. And Even then, not everybody's going to run to go see the rock band. A lot of people are going to still hang out and drink by the keg and not fucking pay attention. If
1: it was low octane, they would have flocked.
0: Yeah, the party's going to shit because they can't get the band to start playing or something. Like this one dude with long hair is supposed to let the band know they need to play now but he's used up all the batteries in the walkie talk. It's a so dumb scene. And this is supposed to be like suspenseful. Like you're supposed to be like, Oh my God, is the band going to start playing? You know, so they don't get the band to play on time. So the scrunt can now get story. So story gets dragged off into the shrubs. This whole sort of series of events is so stupid and not exciting. And like they pull her out of the shrubs and now her hair is white. I didn't even notice that her hair changes color. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I just somehow missed that.
1: Well, no, it c- seems to happen when she gets like injured, or if she's not in water long enough, because she's like her hair like starts getting like lighter on the ends. I noticed, and then huh.
2: I noticed that her skin starts looking paler. Yeah. I guess I noticed no, that. No, her, de- that her
1: that. hair definitely like gets lighter at earlier part of the film, but then like after that happens and she's injured, then like she's completely like kind of almost albino.
0: And one of the things that happens at this point is the scrunt gets into the complex and is sort of stalking through the halls. And um, Bob Balaban, the critic, who the party has been ostensibly to celebrate him moving into the complex, but it's just a front to have a party. And he so he thinks the party's all about him, but it's not because fuck you, movie critics. So then he drunkenly goes wandering off looking for a bathroom. Like, why he doesn't just go back to his own Apartment and go to the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know, but he's looking for the public restroom in the apartment complex because mm-hmm. every every apartment building has a public restroom. <laughs> oh yeah, down on the ground floor. And so he wanders down in this hall, and the scrunt comes, and this. For me, this might be the worst part of the movie just because – so Bob Balaban basically addresses the camera and he's like, this is the part in the movie where the obnoxious character that nobody likes gets – if this was a horror movie, this character would be killed. But if this is a (laughs) family-friendly movie, then the character will probably just – be hurt and but will survive and we'll get a comedic comeuppance in the end so i'm gonna turn around and walk away really slowly (sighs) (laughs) and then the scrun attacks him we don't even see it so it's like uh, it doesn't even fulfill the promise of the whole the speech he gives
2: I mean, you see him get dragged down and it is definitely it is definitely implied that he is murdered. Why well, I can't like an animal murder people. He's that it kills him, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if it yeah. murders him. But this scene is so fucking dumb. I don't get it. I don't know why it's there. Like, why would the film critic? I get that he is a film critic, but why does he think he's in a movie? Right? right. Like, why would he? Why is he talking Either to me or the or the weird wolf in front of him, right? He just he's no longer a person. It's really bonkers. It's a bonkers scene, and look, yeah. I appreciate that the that the scrunt finally kills someone in this fucking movie, right? But like, yeah. the only person that dies is this film critic after giving a speech about how he should survive because this is a family film.
0: It's bafflingly stupid, and yeah, like it's it's got this sort of experimental feel to it but it's so fucking dumb that it gets zero points for trying to do something
1: (laughs) i hate it so much i hate it i hate the scene i i do agree with rodney i'm glad the scrunt finally kills someone or something but i don't even know what the rules are i didn't know if the scrunt could harm anybody else i mean people seem afraid of it but i i don't know i just at this point i just want this movie to end
0: it's basically a shrub with teeth so like maybe it just kind of scratches you who knows It's
2: it's a shrub wolf yeah. <laughs> or a wolf shrub. I, I, up to this point, I really thought it, it's only after the after the narc. Yeah. And like, yeah, like it's sort of there's that scene earlier where where Paul Giamatti, you know, confronts it. But because you don't actually see what happens, it's implied he just runs away. But like nobody ever has to confront the fucking thing. So when it finally shows up and kills the, the, the critic, it feels weird because you're like, I didn't know I could just go around killing people. Exactly. Yeah. And why did it kill him? Like that he's not a Narf unless he's JG Narf. (laughs) That's the subtext of the movie.
0: I mean, it's just obnoxious and it's such an obvious dig at critics. You know, we've already kind of covered that, but it's just such a weird, dumb scene, but arguably not as dumb as the next scene. Now, it's funny because... I never, you know, when M. Night Shyamalan first came into prominence, the big thing narrative about him was he was the master of the twist. Every movie supposedly had this big twist. I don't think that's actually true. I think people just kind of made that the narrative about him. I mean, obviously, Sixth Sense has an amazing twist. Unbreakable has a pretty decent twist. Signs, I don't really think has a twist. I think people say it does.
2: Science definitely has a
0: twist. If the twist in Science is arguable, the twist in The Village definitely is not. It's a big twist movie. But then this, the only thing that would really, I think, count as a twist in this movie is this moment where they defined out or they realize that they've got all these categories of classes of people wrong. Yeah. and that Jeffrey Wright is not really the interpreter it's his little his little kid who reads <laughs> fucking cereal boxes <laughs> and so like and I don't know if this is supposed to be funny or not, but then like so they they have this revelation, and then they they cut to like a shot of them all <laughs> gathering around his son as he's staring up into the cat at the cupboard, full of cereal boxes, like all these like crazy made up cereal boxes, and he's just like reading them like <laughs> like tea leaves. Yeah, I gotta tell you. He's just saying the most ridiculous shit.
2: This is the dumbest part of the movie. This is the worst part (laughs) in the entire movie. First of all, why does Jeffrey Wright let his son have 18 different (laughs) types of cereal at once? I just don't understand. There's literally a scene in this movie of a little boy staring at cereal boxes. And being like, it says here in like the back of the Krispies box that like we need seven sisters born on seven nights with seven full moons. And the Frosted Flakes tells me that the, the great healer must come forth on the 11th hour. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? They're just cereal boxes.
0: You immediately take that child to the emergency room and like, you, get him, you get him looked at.
2: And there's all these adults. There's like there's like 20 adults. We're all standing around like oh. just with
0: sincere faces <laughs> it is a brain breaking moment like your mind is shattered at this point like if you sat down to watch this thing seriously you're like your 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 fucking brain is boiling it is boiling out of your fucking head I know high people who got sober at
2: that scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are just like, wait, what? I'm sorry, I'm completely. I need to stop
0: doing drugs.
2: <laughs> I got so high last night that I thought there was a
0: scene in the movie where a little kid was telling fortunes from cereal boxes. It was like this little kid made an oracle out of fucking the ingredients of cereal boxes. Like
1: a fever dream, <laughs> bananas, absolutely bananas.
0: I guess we're supposed to think it's funny. It's not like this this movie doesn't have a sense of humor. I mean, and that's another thing about the movie is the tone is just so strange. There are definitely
2: moments where you're supposed to be laughing. I feel like- For sure, for sure. There's definitely comic moments, and we didn't really talk about them, but the funny moments are funny. I think there's a lot of really, you know, like like the um, the Korean woman and her daughter, they are funny. The stuff with Cleveland getting milk on
0: his
1: mustache is funny. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah, because he needs to be like a child for the grandmother to tell Cookies and
1: milk and lying down for a nap. Yeah, that but it's
0: cute moment.
1: Yeah. But at this
2: point, the movie feels very sincere. Like I'm yeah. supposed to be in awe of the child reading the cereal boxes. Yes. But it's so fucking dumb.
0: <laughs> I believe that that is how it's communicated through cinematic language. That we're supposed to be, our mind is supposed to be blown. Yes. That's what I believe we're <laughs> supposed to be feeling.
2: You're you're out. You're like out having drinks after it with your friends, and you're like man, could you believe that the whole time it was the kid and the cereal boxes and not his dad with the crossword puzzle? Like, (laughs) was that the twist? (laughs) Like, I feel like in his next movie, the whole time you're going to think someone's favorite color is blue. And then at the end, the twist is he actually likes green. (laughs) And he'll be like, I gotcha. Seriously, if you haven't seen this movie, listener, you got to watch
0: it just for the cereal box part. It's something. I guess, but um. So now we're heading into our quote-unquote big climax, which is really not big at all. It starts raining. The band, rock band, starts playing, which is maybe my most my favorite part of the whole movie because they're like, "I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more," (laughs) and they start going into a jam of that song because they that's referencing a a Bob Dylan. Dylan. They, They were playing Bob Dylan earlier. Anyway, we find out that. Mr. Heap is the healer, and so we get this emotional moment, like because uh, story scratched up, and she's ostensibly dead or something. The lady, butterfly lady, can't heal her. So Cleveland's like, "But you're the butterfly lady because I saw a butterfly near you." And she was, like, she's like, "But Mr. Heap, you're the one that brought the butterfly to me." And it's like. <sighs> oh my god he's the healer even though he used to be a doctor and should have already thought of this but whatever he's the healer and this is the one emotional moment that I will give the movie and it's all because of Paul Giamatti yeah. because he's acting the shit out of the scene he's holding her he's holding story in her his arms and he's expressing his grief over his the loss of his wife and child. It's a good moment. It's a good moment for him as an actor. He's really bringing it. He's like breaking down and sobbing and saying, you know, how much he regrets not having been there. To help them when he could have, which, you know, of course, is now playing into this, him trying to help this magical creature from another world. And then, you know, he says, I love you. I love you all. And he's crying and her wounds heal.
2: I love this scene. I think this is my favorite part of the movie. This is this is why I love it. Like,
0: I'll give you this one.
2: To to me, the whole movie is just an excuse to build to this moment. And I think Paul Giamatti knocks it out of the park. I just like the idea that, like, even though her mission is to, like, help M. Night Shyamalan become the world's best writer, in the process, she saves Paul Giamatti, right? Like, he goes from being a broken man to, like, finally forgiving himself and, like, saying goodbye to his family. I, I was very affected. I remember getting teary-eyed when I saw this scene. It's a shame that the rest of the movie is the movie around it. But per- this, this moment is why I love M. Night Shyamalan. Like, when he gets these scenes right, it hits the exact target that I want out of a movie scene.
1: I think it's the best scene in the movie. And I think Paul Giamatti's acting his ass off. It doesn't save the movie because nothing can save this movie, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's a great scene. I, I, it's the one time I actually feel something in this film.
0: So this brings us into the big showdown uh, with the scrunt. Um, none of what plays out here makes any fucking sense. The, the scrunt is hunting around the complex while the heroes gather around the pool to summon the eagle or whatever. Paul Giamatti faces off with the scrunt with a pool cleaner, which is just hilarious. <laughs> but like he already knows he's not the guardian at this point. He knows he's the healer. So I don't I mean, I guess he's just doing it because he feels he needs to.
2: Yeah, he's just being brave.
0: There's a friggin' hilarious moment where we haven't mentioned this character, but it's funny because last week we did uh, Grindhouse and we talked about Freddie Rodriguez. Freddie Rodriguez is a character who lives in this this apartment complex. He hasn't factored into the story at all, so there was no reason to talk about him. But the quirk of his character is that he only works out one side of his body, so he has this hilariously <laughs> huge arm, like,
1: like Popeye. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like Popeye right arm, but his his left arm is is not huge. That's all his character
1: And his leg too. It's his whole like like one side of his body works out.
0: Right. Turns out that this character has been the real guardian <laughs> the whole time. Because I don't know half of his body is like, <laughs> he's the guard because half of his body is worked out and the mm-hmm. other half isn't. I don't, Yes,
1: I, exactly, hon. That's exactly what it is.
2: <laughs> it, it is weird. It, the trouble is so many of the people in this movie are barely in the movie. Right. So there's not enough screen time to make anyone feel important. But this guy, especially, the, you were, you remember him because it's hard to forget the dude who has one bulging arm <laughs> and one normal arm, Right. right?
0: but he never factors into the story at all nope. other than these the beginning and the end.
2: Right. And it feels like this is actually the big twist, right? The music swells and Paul Giamatti like looks in the camera and goes, "He's the guardian." And then the camera like <laughs> yeah. it pans over and there is is Freddy Rodriguez yeah. Yeah. with his one bulging muscle just like staring at the wolf and they're like, "Just keep looking at the wolf." <laughs> yeah. And and I'm like, "Okay, I I did not see that coming because why would I, right?
0: Your fucking fantasy epic ends with a staring contest <laughs> between a grass wolf and a dude who's got one half of his body jacked.
2: <laughs> who's literally only in like the first five minutes. Yeah, there's a couple other parts you see him like working out in the background. But like, there's no part, there's no reminder of him being in the middle of the movie. So he doesn't it's have like- another scene. Yeah, and at this point, why do we even need the guardian, right? Like, what is he? He doesn't really do much because he stares at the wolf for like two seconds, and then your favorite characters, the 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 tree apes, show up.
0: Yeah, the monkeys made out of branches come, and they look pretty fucking boss. They're the uh, tartutic, <laughs> yeah. is what they're yes. called. Which is, I'm sorry, the least dumb name in this whole thing. Yes. Yeah, these branch monkeys come out of nowhere. There's three of them, but yeah, they just. Well, I mean, there's not much to say. They just basically come down from the trees and start wailing on the scrunt, and, and that's it. That's our end of movie.
2: It's so fucking weird. Why are there tree monkeys? Like, why the premise is like, oh, they like come after things that are breaking the rules of the blue world, but they they serve no purpose whatsoever. And what's the point of having a guardian if he doesn't do anything? Like, right. what, if he didn't, imagine Freddy Rodriguez just stayed in his apartment listening to the band, right? What would have happened? The the Tartutics still would have just come out of the trees and beaten up the scrunt. It's literally a deus ex machina, right? Like, yeah. at the end of, like, the next Avengers film, I don't want, like, some other alien to land on Earth and beat the <laughs> bad guy. I want the Avengers to do it
0: because they're the fucking characters. Yeah it's it's terrible writing but i mean everything every everything in this movie is terrible i mean other than a few things a few scenes so by this point i don't give a shit if there's a deus s machina because it's all been taught horrible and at least i'm getting some friggin monkeys (laughs) it's fair that's all i care about no i but i agree with you 100 it's a ridiculous it makes no sense and it's yeah it, it it undermines the whole idea of needing a guardian to begin with i'm just
2: picturing like him sitting next to his daughter's bed and being like, and they're like, and then daddy, what, is, what did Cleveland do to save the day? And he goes, absolutely nothing. The Tartu dick <laughs> arrived and they beat the shit out of the scrunt and took him home. Now go to sleep
0: (laughs) and worst bedtime story ever. So then the Eagle comes and it's kind of a nice shot because the Eagle comes and we only see it in a reflection in the pool. So we don't get to see a full on terrible CG Eagle, which I'm sure it would have been looked terrible. The Eagle takes story away. The fucking end. That's the end. Uh, Story goes off into the sky. I don't think we need to talk about what, like, what do you like about this movie? (laughs) Why do you think it failed, Jennifer?
1: <laughs> really? Well, I, I actually am
2: curious about this.
1: <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, there's so uh, – it, no, I, I, I can't. I don't even – I can't even. Like, there's so many reasons why. It's, it's just – I don't know if it doesn't know its audience or – I mean, it's it's – being, it's this fantasy. Well, apparently, its audience Is, was
0: his kids,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just not. I, I think it's just a a weird genre for him and what he's trying. I mean, I get what he was trying to do, but it's. I just don't. I don't know who this movie's for, or even if it was for kids. Like, they're gonna have questions about some of these decisions and like the way that the, the the plot is going and stuff i mean it's not that complex like i would i would have, if i was a kid i'd be like what why is this happening what's going on here you know it's like
2: but here i don't mean to interrupt but my question is like i get why people don't like it after seeing it right but all his previous movies made multiple hundreds of millions of dollars and by this point just seeing that and like when it says from the director of the village in and signs and sixth sense why didn't it have like a massive opening week couple of weeks? Like why did it not get up to that? Do you think it was just
0: Well, I I feel like like when you're a really big name and you've made yourself into this brand and you've made gazillions of dollars, there's going to be a point where the backlash is going to come, right? Like it's in it's inevitable. And I think that The backlash had sort of started with the village. I think there were a lot of people that didn't like the village. So I think people were already starting to turn. And I think that, you know, the marketing for this wasn't particularly good. I think there wasn't really an easy way to sell this in marketing. I mean, that's how what I remember about it was that, like, I didn't even know what this was supposed to be about, you know, and it was like that you know, his sort of arrogance even carried over into that where it's like, it's the next story. It's the next movie from M. Night Shyamalan. It's like, okay, it's his next movie, but what the fuck is it? It's like, it's the lady in the water. Okay. That's great. What the fuck is the lady in the water? Like you'll find out, you know, like, and it's just like, I mean, with signs, it's like, okay, cool. They're fucking aliens with six sense. It's like, okay, cool. It's like, It's, you know, a ghost. Oh, you know, with Unbreakable. I mean, they didn't sell it like a superhero movie, but but I think once it came out, people were like, hey, it's a superhero movie and cool. You know, what are you selling this as? Like, it's not, you know, I think this just the marketing was bad and I think people were ready to turn on him. And then I think once the the reviews came out and they were like, this thing sucks, then everybody was like, all right, I'm going to stay home this weekend. No, thanks. I don't even
1: remember the marketing for it like at all. Like I like I told you, I yeah. solely went to the theater just because I was still on board with M. Night Shyamalan. So that's why I went to see it. I can't even re- I can't even remember what it was about because like, like again, I'm sorry to keep bringing up that I fell asleep, but I did. And it was like watching it today was like, oh, like I I, I didn't even remember like what the even the, the, the like what the deal was with the lady in the water. What her what her, you know, what story story was.
0: Yeah, no, the marketing was intentionally vague because how the fuck do you explain this thing in a fucking trailer? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just a bunch of people talking about shit most of the time. And what they're talking about is ridiculous. So like, how do you sell that? You know, you don't even really have much visually going on other than like the scrunts and the monkeys. And I think they were in the trailer. There's just nothing to sell. There's no there's there's no sizzle to this steak. So how do, how do you sell it? All you can sell it on is M. Night Shyamalan's name. And I think people were getting tired of his name. And it was even more, you know, it turned out to be even worse for his next movie, The Happening, which is a movie I get a lot more entertainment value out of this. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. 100%. It's a terrible movie. As bad as this, but it's a lot more fucking entertaining in a, in a so bad it's good way. But that movie tanked really bad because you know, this movie had come out and had, had not done well and had been poorly received by critics. So people were like, fuck that guy. And then, you know, we just, we saw that happen for everything he did until he did that Blumhouse movie um, and started to come back. They were using his name as a brand and I think the brand had run its course and he was making bad movies and that's why.
2: Yeah, I guess, I guess what it was is the village is the one that had the big numbers because people went just because it was M Night Shyamalan. Right. But then after seeing the village, probably a lot of people were like, "I'm good. Uh, no more M Night Shyamalan." For exactly. Me. I, I'm still in that camper. Like when I see his name, I, it doesn't matter. Like I'm always gonna go. Yep. Like
1: me too. You don't even
2: need to tell me what it's about. It literally just needs to say the new M Night Shyamalan film, and I'm gonna go. Yep. But young Rodney went with this hopeful enthusiasm, but current Rodney now sees M Night Shyamalan films. With this kind of like depressed reluctance, you know, like, uh-huh. like, I hope this one's good, but odds are I'm not going to like it. Just like we we don't have to get into all the other films, but after this movie, his quality declines incredibly sharp. And you would obviously argue before this movie.
0: I think this movie is the the bottom of the barrel for him, for me personally.
2: No, The Last Airbender
0: is the bottom. Last Airbender is guilty of being mediocre no i dude it's this is like catastrophic i disagree
2: i think last airbender i just flip i think last airbender is catastrophic
0: and i think this is like i certainly wouldn't mount a defense for it so don't get don't get that impression (laughs) it's bad but it's not offensively bad to me in this way but i'm not a fan of the cartoon i know people who are fan of the cartoon really have a problem with it because it's a bad 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 adaptation but we can talk about that some other time, I guess, because he's got so many bombs. I mean, this could just be M Night Shyamalan cast.
2: Yeah, he's dude's got a lot of bombs under his belt. It's pretty crazy.
0: All right, well, I'm gonna go pull a naked narf out of a pool and <laughs> keep her free of the scrunts and go, you know, have a sit down with the branch monkey tartu dicks. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoltrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks
1: for listening, and we'll see you real soon.